Recently, we uh, were in Rochester, my family and I, for a holiday gathering. It was our only opportunity to get the extended family together, so we, we kind of did Christmas a little bit early, and we didn't exchange a lot of gifts, but my daughters did leave with one gift. My cousin Patrick got them a state quarters map. Anybody know what a state quarters map is? Yeah, here's a, here's a picture of a state quarters map, and, and essentially the way it works is it's a map of our country, and then there's a little slot inside each state where, where the kids can collect and place the quarters, and come to find out, uh, the quarters have states on the back of them now. I'm sure you all knew that, but I, don't, I hate change. Like I, I don't pay any attention to change, and so uh, I didn't even, I, I think I knew, but I wasn't paying much attention. But it's interesting, now that my girls have these maps in their home, and they're desperately trying to fill up all the different states. Every time I go through the Wegmans checkout line and they, they give me back quarters, before I'm even out of the store, I'm, look, I'm flipping them over and I'm looking at them. I'm trying to figure out, which state is this? Do they, do they have this state? And what used to be of no interest to me at all, all of a sudden is of great interest to me. And I think this time of the year, for many people in many places, what they normally pay very little attention to they begin to pay a little more attention to. Much of our country, for much of the time, thinks very little about Jesus Christ and the birth of Jesus Christ. But at this time of the year, you can't go anywhere. You can't hear music. You can't see things without thinking about the birth of our Savior. This morning, we're beginning a 21-week series through the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke provides us with the most information and the most, most insight about the birth of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at that, several stories about the birth of Jesus. So during December, that's what we're really going to be focused on. And what that means is that if you are visiting with us in December, it's a great time to be here because you're going to learn some really important, vital truths to what we actually believe. But here's what else it means. If you're a regular, December is an amazing month to invite people to join you. An incredible month to say to somebody, would you come with me to church? Would you celebrate with me? And uh, we've created these invitation cards for you. They're at the Info Center. We want everyone to take one today and pray about somebody that you can hand this to. This invites them to our special Christmas Eve service. And on the back is more information. And at the bottom, there's a special page on our website, which has information about both our Christmas Eve service on the 24th and our Sunday morning Christmas service on the 23rd. Can we as a people just commit ourselves to saying, December will not pass me by without me inviting somebody to join. And maybe it's someone you've never invited before. Or maybe it's someone that you've invited so many times and they've always said no and you think they're never going to say yes. And I'm telling you, December is a time where people begin to think about things that they don't normally think about. So let's be a people who are bringers when we show up on Sunday morning. As we go into Luke and spend five months here, I just want to give you just some brief thoughts and some brief oversights on the Gospel of Luke. So Luke, of course, is in the New Testament. It's, it's one of the four Gospel accounts that we have in the Scriptures. There's Matthew, Mark, and then the third one is Luke, and then there's the Gospel of John. Luke is the longest of the four Gospels. Uh, Luke bears many similarities with Matthew and Mark. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels, those three Gospels are known as the synoptic Gospels because they share a lot of similar content. John was kind of doing his own thing. John was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke has things in common with Matthew and Mark, but Luke is unique from all the other Gospels in one significant way. Luke is the only gospel that has two volumes. 
The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume is the book of Acts, and that's later in the New Testament. Well, what do we know about this man named Luke? Luke was most likely a Gentile convert. We don't know that for 100% sure, but most people think that. Luke was a ministry partner with a name you might recognize, the Apostle Paul. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, whenever you see the pronoun, we did this, we went there, that's Luke was with Paul on that particular journey. In fact, in the scriptures, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. He calls him a fellow worker. And then in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul's nearing the end of his life and he's in prison in Rome, Paul says this about Luke. And I think this is such a wonderful thing to be able to say about somebody. He says, only Luke stayed with me, or only Luke is with me. So there's a real connection between the author of this gospel and the apostle Paul. Luke was a historian. He was a physician. And in Luke, some of the themes that we find in the Gospel of Luke more, uh, more pronounced than in the other Gospels are things like this. Luke has a, a real focus on women, on children, on the poor, on the outsider. Luke uh, has a little more focus on the Holy Spirit than Matthew and Mark. And Luke also talks a lot about peace. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at the first four verses of this book of Luke, where he introduces his account. These four verses set us up for the stories about the birth of Jesus that we're going to look at together the next three Sundays. So let's read this together. Luke chapter one, I'm reading to you from the ESV. We're just going to read these four verses. So lean in with me as we read. Luke writes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." And in this introduction, in these four verses, Luke is basically answering the question why he wrote his gospel, why he's wrote his account. And we're going to find that there's three reasons, and this is in your notes for you this morning. And the first one is this. Luke wrote his account to tell the story, to tell the story. You know, at Trinity, a lot of diversity as far as what people do and, and, and how, where people work and what sort of careers people are involved in. And maybe you didn't know this, but there are at least four people that are members at our church that are published authors. There might be more, but there's, there's four that I'm aware of. And as I was preparing for this message and I was thinking about why did Luke write, I sent each of them a little message and I said, why do you write? Why do you write? And two of them, two of them are ladies and, and they write, uh, they both write fiction or at least one writes fiction all the time. The other one writes some fiction and some nonfiction. But when I asked them why they write, they, um, it was interesting because uh, the first answer was, I just do what the voices tell me to do, which was a little bit scary. Uh, but <laughs> that, uh, I hope that doesn't apply in every area of life. Um, but they both kind of said the same thing. It's almost like I have to get it out of me. I have this image, I have this thought, I have this dreamlike vision, and I see it, and I can't explain it, and I don't know where it comes from, but I have to write it. So one of them said, there's a story that demands to be written, and I have to write it. And the other one said that there's a story that needs to be told, and there's truths in those stories that need to be shared. And I think that's one of the reasons why Luke wrote. He said, he looked at this, he heard of all these things that were happening, and being the historian and the investigative reporter that he was, he said, there's a story that demands 
to be told. He had to tell the story. You know, everyone loves a good story, from children to adults. Everyone loves stories, whether it's the movies that we watch or the podcasts that we listen to or the books that we read or the conversations that we have. Stories have a way of capturing us, drawing us in, making us feel like we're a part of it. Stories can move us emotionally. They can make us feel things, and they can also make us think. And even a good story can make you do something differently. It can cause you to respond and make you to act. And Luke was an investigative reporter. He wasn't an eyewitness himself. We're not sure that Luke ever actually saw Jesus or saw what he did. And he certainly wasn't one of his apostles. But what Luke did is he went to the original source. He went and talked to the eyewitnesses to get the facts straight. And he read the other accounts because there were many other accounts of what Jesus had done. Most, most scholars believe that Luke had access to the gospel of Mark. So by the time Luke was writing, he had Mark's account and it shaped the way that he wrote. He's reporting a story, and it's a true story. C.S. Lewis, who's known uh, in some circles most for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, but also was a tremendous Christian apologist, uh, was an English lit professor at Oxford. Brilliant. He was an atheist who converted to Christianity. And this is what he said when he read the Gospel of Luke and other Gospel accounts. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. And I know none of them are like this. Speaking of the Gospels. He said, of this text, the Gospel of Luke, there are only two possible views. Either this is investigative reporting, this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. That's a lot of big words, but here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Nobody wrote fiction this way back then. Nobody did. No one included all the details that the Gospels include. The only time details were included, seemingly unnecessary details, was when it was actually an eyewitness report that was being given. So even from a literature standpoint, C.S. Lewis says, this stuff's not made up. This is true. This is a real story. This story can be trusted. Did you notice how Luke said uh, at the beginning there, he said, in as much as many others have tried to write the story. So Luke wasn't saying, I'm writing the story because I'm the only one who's going to do it. Other people are doing this. He's not critiquing them. He's just stating a fact. He's saying, everyone's talking about Jesus, what he did, who he was. Everyone's writing it down. Now think about the events of Jesus' life, the way that he was born, the life that he lived, the things that he did, the way that he died, the claims of his resurrection. If those things had actually transpired, then of course everybody was talking about them. If those things happened and nobody was talking about them, it would be proof that they didn't really happen, but many were. This was a widely known story. And the Gospel of Luke was written, the conservative commentators say, as early as 63 AD. The other end of things, people say it could have been as late as 75 AD. Either way, the Gospel of Luke was written 30 to 40 years after these events. And in the Gospel of Luke, he actually names people who saw Jesus who still would have been alive. Well, what does that all mean? 30 to 40 years is way too soon to start a legend, to spread a rumor, to tell a lie as crazy as this. Why? Because people were still alive who would have said, what? I was there. That didn't actually happen. It was 
These things that were written, these gospels that were written, were meant for circulation. In fact, the introduction that we just read, those four verses, it's one long Greek sentence, which is common. It's a formal introduction that was common in ancient writing when it was meant to be widely circulated. So here's what I'm saying. The Gospel of Luke was not some sort of secretive, controlled effort to spread a rumor or a lie or advance agenda, an agenda. Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did, was widely known, openly talked about. Everybody understood and accepted it. Now, not everybody believed the disciples' explanation for why the tomb was empty, but everybody knew everything else was true. And the Gospel here of Luke, he's telling a story. And what I want you to notice is that this is a story it's not, Luke didn't give us a list of uh, things to believe, although there's lots of things in the stories that we believe. He didn't give us a set of standards. He didn't give us a list of, here's how you should live. He, did, he didn't also just give us a creed or a set of doctrines, because if he just given us beliefs, then here's what you do. You agree or you disagree with beliefs based on your worldview. If it was standards, then you just choose. Am I going to live to those standards or am I not? If it was a creed, you just recite it and rehearse it and hope that it holds up. But let me ask you this. What do you do, when you hear, what do, you do with a story? There's three things. You got to hear it, you remember it, and then you share it. That's what you do with a story. And Luke here is telling a story, and he wants his listeners to hear. He wants them to remember, and he wants them to share it. And let's never forget, as a church here at Trinity, let's remember what we gather around every Sunday morning. We don't gather around shared opinions. We don't gather around common ethics a standard of morals, a view on politics. We don't even gather around doctrine and belief and theology. We gather around a story. We are the people of a story. It's the story about a person, and his name was Jesus Christ. And the story of Jesus fits into the overall story, of course, that the Bible is telling. So let me just pause and, and ask you this question. When you think of your life, Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, when you're not sitting here on Sunday morning, which story do you spend the most time thinking about? Which stories capture your mind and your heart the most? Which stories do you know the best? Here's another way of asking it. How well do you know this story? The one that we're about to spend 21 weeks learning together. How well do you know it and why does it matter? And the reason why it matters is this, because whatever story you spend the most time thinking about, whatever story you rehearse internally the most, whichever story you tell yourself, whichever story you're most fluent in, that is the story that you give the power to shape you and to shape the way you live your story and shape the way that you view the world and the way in which you live. And I want to challenge you as your pastor to position yourself more frequently than just Sunday mornings to know this story. It's not enough. Can I say that? It's not enough to come on Sunday mornings to hear a sermon and think, this is the story that I know. You won't know the story. You gotta grow on your own. You have to be in the scriptures. You have to be reading. You need to get connected with some of our next steps, our grow classes on Wednesday night. We just this past Wednesday night started a study through the book of 1 Samuel. I mean, that might not seem significant to you. Like, why do I need to know it? You, want, you know why you need to know it? Because it's all part of the story. It's revealing to us who God is. And we need to submit ourselves to regular opportunities to hear the story, to engage with the story, and to respond to the story. Because if you think hearing the story for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is going to keep you focused on the right things for the rest of your week, I don't think it works that way. How do we immerse ourselves daily in this story? So Luke writes it, number one, to tell the story. Here's the second reason why Luke wrote his gospel 
to serve his friend. To serve his friend. We learn in, this, in these opening four verses that Luke didn't just write this sort of for a broad audience, although it was broadly read and still read today, but Luke wrote it for one person. Did you, did you notice that? He, he said, this is for you, most excellent Theophilus. A Theophilus in the Greek means lover of God. And so some people think, well, that's kind of a pseudonym. So what Luke is saying is that his gospel was written for anybody who loves God. But it doesn't really make sense in the overall context of his introduction. Theophilus was almost certainly a real person, a real person uh, uh, who was maybe not a believer, maybe someone who was just curious. Maybe he calls him most excellent, which, most, which means that he had status. He probably was a very wealthy person. So we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but imagine somebody who had enough money and enough clout to um, sort of pay somebody to put together or ask somebody to put together this account for him. And Luke wrote this to serve his friend. In January of 2014, uh, I was in Branson, Missouri. Anybody ever been to Branson, Missouri? They say it's the, like the Vegas of the East. But uh, when you're there in January, it's a ghost town. It's the, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's like being in uh, Florida in August. Branson in January is not a lot of fun. But I was in Branson for a conference, and uh, I was asked to give a talk to a bunch of national leaders on how do you measure health in youth ministry. And I got up there to give my talk, and unbeknownst to me, there were people who had been invited to that talk specifically for this reason. They had been invited and they said, we want you to listen to David talk and we want you to determine, is his content, should his content become a book? They were with publishing houses. And I didn't know that. It's probably a good thing I didn't know that, right? Because then I would have been like, you know, useless with the microphone in my hand, all nervous and trying to impress people. So I got up there and I talked and I didn't know they were there. But as I walked off stage after my talk, a man walked up to me that I had never seen before in my life. And he said, he introduced himself. He said, I'm the vice president of publishing for this company. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And... Um, so it began a conversation. So I said, well, not, not necessarily. Not, it's not, I'm not ambitious to do that. It's not something, it's not like a life goal, but I'm interested in the conversation. So he said, okay, well, let's start the conversation because what you said, we want to turn into a book. And uh, that was January of 2014. Well, some of you know our story. Two weeks later, Madeline was born. And our youngest was born at 27 weeks, uh, two, and a half, two pounds, one and a half ounces, brain hemorrhage. Long, she's great now, but uh, very difficult season of life, very demanding season of life. And so they knew about that. They heard that that had happened. And so they stopped, we stopped interacting. And I kind of thought, well, that all had just, that was done with. Well, they reached back out to me towards the end of August, September, and said, we really do want that to be a book. And they said, in fact, we're going to email you a contract, a book contract. So I was like, okay. So they sent it to me, and I'm reading the book contract, and uh, I'm reading through it all, and it says 30 to 35,000 words, and then it shows the date that they want the finished manuscript by, and it's a month away. <laughs> So I got on the phone with them and I said, I, I'm willing to try this. I'm willing to write. I'm not willing to sign something that obligates me to deliver something on that date. I was in grad school at that point. I had a full-time job. Madeline was still dealing with lots of challenges. Life was full. I was thinking, how am I possibly going to do this? And so I signed off and began to write. And by God's grace, I handed my manuscript in like two days before the deadline. And uh, it ended up becoming a book. And I remember like all the work that it took to write that book. 
And everywhere I went, because I was traveling and speaking, so I mean, I, I rode it on planes flying out to Wisconsin, and I, I rode it, Aaron, and Aaron endured so much, you know, I'd be sitting at home at night writing, and just every time you write, and if you're a writer, you know this, sometimes writing is easy, and sometimes you might as well just stop because nothing good is going to happen. And so you kind of like got to wait for the muse, so to speak, to really want to write and be able to write. And I mean, I, I wrote so hard and I was writing, you know, they paid me in advance and I was writing because I thought it was a book that could help youth ministries all over the country. But if they had said, we want you to do all this for one person, I would have said, forget about it. You're crazy. I'm not doing all of that for one person. And the work that I did probably is nothing compared to the work that Luke put into writing this account. As we read this, you know, nowadays, if I need information, I can sit at home and just clickety-clack away on my computer and get all the information. What did Luke have to do to get information? He had to travel. He had to chase people down. He had to interview people. He had to read. He had to do all these sort of things. And he did it all for Theophilus. Now, of course, he did it because the Spirit inspired him, and he did it for the glory of God. But here's what I want to impress on your heart. Look how much Luke loved his friend. Consider how much Luke cared about the spiritual condition of this man, Theophilus, and what he was willing to do to make sure that Theophilus heard the most important story ever. And the question to us this morning is, what are we willing to do to make sure that our friends hear the story? What are we willing to lay down? What are we willing to be inconvenienced by? What are we willing for it to cost us in order that people who need to hear this story, who this story can change their story, this person of Jesus Christ can rescue their very lives, and we know the story, how much are we willing to do? Luke put so much into this endeavor just to serve his friend and to help his friend know the story, really only for two reasons. One, Luke loved his friend, and Luke loved the story. He loved the story. So what effort do we put in? Our vision at Trinity is simply that we would see gospel transformation, heart change, life change, gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. We're committed as a church. If you, if you live within any sort of reach that we have as a church, that includes your neighborhoods, if you live outside of Clay, wherever you live, anywhere you have reach, anywhere you have influence, anywhere you go, that's, that's, a, that's an area that we want to reach. And we believe that the gospel is powerful enough, true enough, beautiful enough, strong enough to change every single person's life and to turn people upside down and to set them free from the things that they're bound to and to bring them into new hope and new life and to give them purpose. And the very story that's changed many of your lives, what are we doing as a church? What are you doing as an individual? What are you committing yourself to as a family to say, I'll do whatever it takes to get the story because I want to help my friend. I want to serve my friend. So Luke wrote his gospel, number one, to tell the story, number two, to serve his friend. And then thirdly, the last thing this morning is this, Luke wrote his gospel to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our faith. In verse four, he said this, he he concludes this long Greek sentence with this phrase, I wrote all this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, certainty. What are the things in this world that you're certain about? It was old saying that only death and taxes, right? Those are the only things we can be certain about. But you know, as Christians, there's something else that we're certain about. And we're certain about this story. And Luke wrote this story. Now, how can we trust his account? I already talked about this a little bit. But did you notice that Luke said it's been delivered to us? 
And what that means is the Greek is that it's been passed down from people that are trustworthy. This idea of or, the oral tradition, you know, back then they weren't writing stuff down all, all the time. It was actually somewhat unusual what Luke did to record it in writing. Mostly what they did at that culture in that time in the world then was they told stories and it was an oral tradition. They would pass it down and their memory and the way in which they would tell stories and pass stories from generation to generation, although it might not seem like the most reliable, trusted form to us today, it was tremendously reliable because they were fully committed to that practice. And so Luke says, when I hear these things from people, when it's passed down, it's, it's, uh, it's sure and I can depend on it. But the other thing he said is, I've put it together carefully and skillfully. He said, it's an orderly account. One of the greatest archaeologists of all time was a man named Sir William Ramsey. And Sir William Ramsey, he studied under the famous German historical schools in the mid-19th century. And those schools taught that the New Testament, including the Gospel of Luke, was nothing more than a fable. It was a religious treatise, and it was written in the mid-200s, not written right after everything had happened, but written hundreds of years later. And these schools in Germany taught that a historical, it was not a historical document, and it was not to be trusted. A Ramsey was so convinced of what he had been taught that he decided to enter the field of archaeology. And you know what he did? He went to Asia Minor, to where all these stories happened. And he went to specifically find physical evidence so that he could refute Luke's biblical record. He knew Luke's had the most details. He knew that Luke's was, in some ways, the most respected as far as uh, the, the information in it. And so he went to Asia Minor. He began to commit his life to finding evidence to refute the biblical record of Luke. And here's what happened. Ramsey ended up completely reversing his entire view of the Bible in the first century. And this is an exact quote that what Sir William Ramsey wrote. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is also possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author, Luke, should be placed along the greatest of historians to ever live. See, Luke investigated, he researched, and he wrote, he wrote his account carefully, and he wrote it thoughtfully so that he could give the most important certainty that anybody could possibly have. These things really happened. This story is really true. And as we begin this journey, we begin to look at story after story, and you ask yourself, did that really happen? Could that really be true? Remember, Luke wrote this so that we would have that certainty, that the story is true. That actually sets, let me finish with a couple thoughts, that actually sets Christianity apart from so many other religions because it's steeped in a real place, in a real time with real people who have names and had descendants and in towns and in villages and by seas and lakes where people can still go to. I mean, Christianity didn't happen up in a cloud, up in a sky that you can just say, I got a vision, I got a revelation, and now here's what we believe. Christianity happened in time and place because God stepped out of heaven into time and place so that he, his story could interfere with our story change our story. Here's what it means if you're a Christian this morning. Your faith is not just based on how you feel. Don't believe that. Don't live that lie because some days you're not going to feel it. Your faith is not just based on how you feel. Here's another thing. It's not based on the church and whether the church has its act together or not. The church has a long history of not having its act together. Your faith can't stand on that. Your faith is not based on how other Christians act or how they live, or whether you appreciate them, or like them, or agree with them. Your faith isn't even based on whether you like what the Bible says, 
or whether you like what Jesus taught. It's not based on how you think the earth began or how you think the earth will end. It's not based on your interpretation of all these little minute secondary doctrinal issues. Your faith is not based on agreement with political or moral views. Your faith is based on verifiable historical events, a story. Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived among us, was seen by many, was touched, was saved, was delivered by many. Many saw him die. People saw him buried. Many saw the empty tomb. And many, many people saw the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only faith that is historically verifiable. And so our faith is not just built on our feelings, but it's built on some truth. Faith, yes, but not blind faith. Spiritual, yes, but also natural, historical. Emotional, yes, but also intellectual. Satisfying, yes, but also credible, both. And Ned Stonehouse, commentator, says that the main impact of these four verses, the main impact of the prologue is that Christianity is true and it's capable of confirmation by appeal to what had happened. So Luke writes this story, and I want you to hear this. Luke writes this story to get all the facts right, but more than that. Luke doesn't write just to present the hard, cold facts. He writes to pierce the hardest, coldest heart. Not just the hard, cold facts, but that the gospel can break through on the hardest, coldest heart. And what is the gospel? Well, we see it right here in this text. Verse one, he said, I want to write a story about the things that have been, here's the word, accomplished. Accomplished. That verb, accomplished in the Greek, is in a verb tense known as the, uh, it's the, let me make sure I get this right, it's the passive voice. When you say an active verse, that means you did, or sorry, when you say an active verb, that means you did something. But when it's a verb in a passive voice, here's what it means. It's something that was done for you something that was done to you. So when Luke says, I want to write a story about what's been accomplished for us, here's what he's saying. I want to write a story about the historical saving acts of God that have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, Luke's saying, my story is not about what's been done by you, but what's been done for you. And that's the heart of the gospel. The good news of Christianity is this. Not all the things that you've done has nothing to do with what you've done good or bad in your past, has nothing really to do with what you've done good or bad in your present or in your future. Christianity rises and falls on what's been done for you by the person of Jesus Christ. Either his work for you is adequate and sufficient to make you right before the Father, or we have no other hope. And and Luke here is saying it's been, I love this because it's passive, but it's also past tensed, right? It's accomplished finished. It's been done for you. He talks about those, and this is the last thing I want to say. He says, it's been passed down to me from people who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. That word ministers in many other translations is the word servants. And it's interesting because he's saying they didn't just see Jesus, but they became his servants. They became a minister of his gospel. And Luke's teaching us something very powerful here when he says they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's saying there's no delineation. You can't see Jesus and not serve Jesus. Once you've been an eyewitness, once you've, as Jen read earlier, once you've tasted and seen, Psalm 34, 8, that the Lord is good, you can't help but serve. You minister the gospel. And that's the power of this story, that once you know this story, it becomes your story. And it shapes 
your story. Let's pray together this morning.